Hi, I'm Katie Marquette, and you're listening to Born of Wonder. And here there is something more than just a transient experience. It's about uh, being. It's about the things that matter to me. It's about the white spaces between the paragraphs. Then God said, let there be light. It's a mistake you always made, Doc, trying to love a wild thing. When despair for the world grows in me, and I wake in the night at the least sound, in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water, and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things, who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water, and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. For a time, I rest in the grace of the world and am free. Wendell Berry, The Peace of Wild Things. The hawk was everything I wanted to be, solitary, self-possessed, free from grief, and numb to the hurts of human life. Helen MacDonald, H is for Hawk. So in this episode, I really wanted to focus on nature and animals and wild things and how, uh, how, how nature keeps us in awe of the world and also about the complicated uh, relationship that human beings have with the natural world, how we both uh, crave to be a part of it, but also always feel a little bit outside of it. And I think that both that poem you heard from Wendell Berry and that excerpt from um, Helen MacDonald's memoir, H is for Hawk, um, speak to speak to those feelings, that feeling of that uh, animals and the natural world, uh, as Wendell Berry said, do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I don't know if you've ever seen that. Um, there's like a meme or a cartoon where it shows a, a man sitting next to his dog looking at a sunset and it shows what the man is thinking in a little thought bubble and what the dog is thinking. And the man is thinking about his work and uh, his uh, commute the next day and everything else. And the dog, meanwhile, is happily just thinking about the sunset. So I think that we are a little envious of animals uh, 
for their ability to live so so peaceably in the world, so naturally in the world. And uh, we hear that longing in uh, Helen McDonald's excerpt there uh, about about the hawk. Um, she says, it was everything I wanted to be, solitary, self-possessed, free from grief, and numb to the hurts of human life. So we'll be using uh, Wendell Berry's poem and also Helen McDonald's memoir as a launching point here to start this discussion. But we'll sort of have a a meandering, a meandering uh, podcast here that explores our complicated relationship with the natural world, what we seek from animals, what we gain from them, uh, but also what we miss when we anthropomorphize them too much. So uh, that is going to be our, our topic today, and I'm going to ins- intersperse a lot of um, sort of nature soundscapes so that you can really immerse yourself and hopefully uh, find yourself a little more relaxed by the end of the episode. Um, Again, my name is Katie Marquette, and you're listening to Born of Wonder. On this podcast, we explore pretty much anything that inspires wonder and awe in the world, so everything from literature to theology to art to animals to um, music, uh, whatever, whatever keeps us grounded in a state of expectation and wonder in the world. So um, let's start uh, talking about Helen McDonald and H is for Hawk. So if you've never read this memoir, I really, really recommend it. It's a really unique book. I've never really read anything like it before. Um, I'd actually like to go re- revisit it soon. I read it for the first time a few a few years ago. And she has a new book of essays out that came out in 2020, which is also very good. But um, she's a naturalist, um, but she's also an amazing writer, a very thoughtful literary writer. And uh, this book is is really a grief memoir in a lot of ways about uh, the death of her father. Uh, And she's also at this time uh, getting into falconry, into training this hawk, into training this goshawk named Mabel. And uh, you learn in the book that the more... uh, less terrifying of a name you pick for your hawk the better hunter they're supposed to be so if you name them something you know terrible like fang or i don't know what's a scary what's a scary hawk name um cujo the hawk um your hawk is going to be a terrible hunter but if you name them something uh sweet and um sort of sounds like an elderly woman like (laughs) like mabel um she's going to be a fierce hunter so she names her hawk mabel and she's training this goshawk and living with this hawk and this experience of um, just face-to-face with the natural world as she's mourning the death of her father and as she's uh, reading The Once and Future King and revisiting the life of T.H. White, who was also uh, had, had hawks and, and hunted with them and uh, sort of failed at hunting with them many times um, and sort of failed in many ways to understand them and used these animals as a way for him to uh, experience um, grief and emotions and longing that he didn't know how to manifest in his human relationships. So she ties all these threads together in just an amazing way uh, and, um, and takes us into sort of what it means to be a human being uh, encountering the wild and often very violent natural world. So I'll, I'll be quoting a bit from H is for Hawk here. Helen McDonald writes, I think of what wild animals are in our imaginations and how they are disappearing, not just from the wild, but from people's everyday lives, replaced by images of themselves in print and on screen. The rarer they get, the fewer meanings animals can have. Eventually, rarity is all they are made of. The condor is an icon of extinction. There's little else to it now but being the last of its kind. And in this lies the diminution of the world. 
How can you love something? How can you fight to protect it if all it means is loss? So this is really interesting, uh, this idea that she brings up that um, that we, because we've, we've excised ourselves so, from, so much from the natural world and because quite literally animals are disappearing from the planet, uh, we are losing them in our imagination, in our art, and in the way we understand the world. And animals don't hold the same literary and metaphorical value that they used to um, for many people. For, for many people, they are completely um, divorced from that world. Uh, so, and I think about, you know, a lot of times you see with uh, children that their books are um, all about animals. They're anthropomorphized animals. You know, we're decorating um, our daughter's nursery right now, expecting her in a, in uh, two months now. And uh, she, you know, all the decorations are, are, are animals, m many of them, you know, the, the alphabet is, is all animals and things like that. And I think of how children's rooms and things like that, we cover them with animals with these sort of sweet versions of them. But I wonder if there's something biological about that, about our need to encounter um, wild things early on and if there's even an evolutionary thing going on there about uh familiarizing ourselves with the with these animals with the natural world from an early age um so i think that that's something to something to ponder is is what does it mean um not just you know in their inherent value in the natural world we want to protect animals and nature and the natural habitats um, that they live in, but also what does that mean for us? You know, what, what does it mean, you know, as she says, that we've replaced images of animals with ourselves uh, in print and on the screen, that, uh, you know, that, that we don't have such a mystical connection with animals anymore, or many people don't. So uh, what, what sort of loss does that entail? Another quote here, uh, she, she writes, Old England is an imaginary place, a landscape built from words, woodcuts, films, paintings, picturesque engravings. It is a place imagined by people, and people do not live very long or look very hard. We are very bad at scale. The things that live in the soil are too small to care about. Climate change is too large to imagine. We are bad at time, too. We cannot remember what lived here before we did. We cannot love what is not, nor can we imagine what will be different when we are dead. We live out our three score and ten and tie our knots in lines only to ourselves. We take solace in pictures and we wipe the hills of history. So again, this idea of us sort of creating nature in our own image, um, I al always think of uh, sort of the Wordsworthian sublime. Not that um, he wasn't experiencing nature, but he was experiencing sort of the English garden variety of nature and the Lake District, you know, beautiful cultivated um, landscapes, which is a very different experience than sort of the uh, Tennyson's uh, red and tooth and claw, right? Um, that, that nature is this violent, sort of uncontrollable thing that we we are afraid of as much as we are in awe of it. And you, you don't sense that in Wordsworth. You don't sense that in, um, in as she says, this imaginary old England um, that we've uh, imagined in our minds. We could say the same for America, you know, the, the Western, the, the Wild West and things like that. And um, beautiful mountainscapes there on decks, you know, that what, what do these mean to us other than what we've imagined them to mean? We've sort of stripped them of, of their violence and their uh, danger, which is part of what makes them beautiful, of course. So how do we uh, inhabit the world of nature as it really is? 
Uh, McDonald, I think, you know, and especially in her most recent essays as well, she basically says it's almost impossible because it's impossible for us to engage with nature or to even engage with an animal without bringing uh, sort of an ethos to it of, of our own design, without um, imposing myths and meaning and uh, that may or may not exist uh, inherently in that thing. So um, you think about when we go to encounter a tree or even our dog or something like that, we are, we're bringing a, a very human understanding of the world. Uh, to, to try to occupy nature as it is uh, might be impossible, but um, you know, in her experience of training this goshawk uh, Mabel, she is allowed to inhabit, if briefly, um, a very, very different world. So here's a quote. Of all the lessons I've learned in my months with Mabel, this is the greatest of all. That there is a world of things out there, rocks and trees and stones and grass and all the things that crawl and run and fly. They are all things in themselves, but we make them sensible to us by giving them meanings that shore up our own views of the world. In my time with Mabel, I've learned how you feel more human once you have known, even in your imagination, what it is like to be not. And I have learned, too, the danger that comes in mistaking the wildness we give a thing for the wildness that animates it. Goshawks are things of death and blood and gore, but they are not excuses for atrocities. Their inhumanity is to be treasured because what they do has nothing to do with us at all. So that's a lot. That's a lot to, to take in. Um, she's saying a lot here. She's saying that, uh, you know, the gift of this, the life with this hawk is that she's inhabiting this whole other world, the hawk's world, which is a whole, you know, basically universe that is foreign to us. And by training this hawk, by becoming so close with this hawk, she is allowed to inhabit it. But hawks are not like people. <laughs> They're not at all like them. Um, they, they, you know, in this other universe that they inhabit, it's, it is a very violent world. It's, she says, goshawks are things of death and blood and gore. Their inhumanity is to be treasured because what they do has nothing to do with us at all. And I love this line too. Um, How you feel more human once you have known, even in your imagination, what it is like to be not. And I think that's a really important point she's making. Uh, that I see a lot of confusion about. Um, you know, I'm somebody who, I grew up with animals. I grew up on a farm. We now have a sort of menagerie of animals, uh, dogs and cats and donkeys and horses. And, um, you know, I, I absolutely adore them. They are a huge part of our life. They have very unique personalities. I am always aware, though, that they are they are not people. Um, they have a different set of instincts, a whole different biology. Of course, some animals are more attuned to humans than others as a result of evolution and breeding. Um, dogs and horses uh, interact with people differently, but they've both been around people for centuries, and it shows. Um, but they are, they're animals, <laughs> and uh, they, they're not people. And I think that sometimes I hear people saying, well, animals do this and that as sort of a way of uh, explaining what humans should be able to do or not do. And of course, we, we are animals, yeah, but we are a different kind of animal than a hawk, for instance, but also a different kind of animal than, uh, than a cat or a dog. And it's important to remember that um, because for better or worse, we have the knowledge of good and evil. <laughs> Uh, a hawk never commits murder. There's just no way. A lion never commits murder. 
Absolutely not, but human beings do. And uh, they also commit violence in a very different way than animals do. So I think that McDonald's ability to inhabit this violent, gory, bloody world of the hawk, but then also to separate herself from it and look at it as something different and very uh, foreign to who she is as a human being is a really valuable lesson. I'm going to uh, stick with the theme of hawks here um, with a poem by Ted Hughes. It's one of his best poems, I think. I think his nature poems are the most arresting in a lot of ways. He was a, a huge animal and nature lover, a conservationist in his later life. Uh, you may only know him as the um, somewhat reviled husband of Sylvia Plath, but uh, give him a chance here. Um, so this poem is called Hawk Roosting. And in this poem, uh, the, the narrator is the hawk. So we are going to, um, we're going to be like Helen McDonald here. And for a moment, we are going to inhabit the world of the hawk. I sit in the top of the wood, my eyes closed. Inaction, no falsifying dream. Between my hooked head and hooked feet, or in sleep, rehearse perfect kills and eat. The convenience of the high trees, the air's buoyancy and the sun's ray are of advantage to me, and the earth's face upward for my inspection. My feet are locked upon the rough bark, it took the whole of creation to produce my foot, my each feather. Now I hold creation in my foot, or fly up and revolve it all slowly. I kill where I please because it is all mine. There is no sophistry in my body. My manners are tearing off heads. The allotment of death. For the one path of my flight is direct through the bones of the living. No arguments assert my right. The sun is behind me. Nothing has changed since I began. My eye has permitted no change. I am going to keep things like this. So in this poem, uh, we really get to feel the hawk's power and violence and, uh, and ownership of his world. He's, you can just feel yourself being perched up on that tree and sort of the, the whole world is in your grasp and you are this just powerful animal um, and you are perfectly at ease with who you are and you are perfectly aware of your capabilities. And uh, so through this poem, we are allowed that moment that uh, Helen McDonald talks about of inhabiting that world of blood and gore. And then we, through reading it, we step back and realize how foreign that world is to us, but how important it is to know that it exists. And this is more um, the the poem in memoriam A.H.H. in Canto 56, Tennyson's uh, phrase, uh, nature red in tooth and claw, the idea that nature is very violent. You know, nature, we sometimes today, you know, you think of people are going forest bathing or whatever that term is and they're hiking and thinking about sublime and Thoreau's and his cabin and 
you know, we're doing yoga and hillsides at sunrise and things like that. And I am all for appreciating the beauty of nature. I absolutely um, do it myself uh, and, and get a lot out of it. But there is this whole other aspect to nature, this very, very violent, very gory side of nature. And that um, I think it's important to not shun that or deny that, um, not to be afraid of it but also to realize that that is foreign to us as human beings that we, and I think that's part of our separation from the natural world is sort of, yes, in our, so our awareness of death really for, for better or worse. Um, again, that knowledge of good and evil that we have, uh, that we've been cursed with that, um, that we, we, when we kill somebody, we're murdering somebody and that, um, with these animal instincts we have, we also have the knowledge um, of an ethical world of a, of right and wrong and good and evil and um, that there's a, a justice behind our actions where there should be. And animals, um, although I think that they are capable of a, a huge range of emotions and probably many emotions that we don't understand. You know, sometimes I get frustrated when I see, oh, they're measuring animal intelligence in this way, when all we're really measuring is how closely they align with our idea of intelligence. Um, you know, maybe in their world, they have a totally different um, meaning of intelligence. Uh, I don't necessarily think that adapting to human life is a sign of intelligence. Um, I think that uh, animals have a huge range of uh, experiences in life, but but that that knowledge, that ethical knowledge is something that is unique to human beings. And so when we occupy the violent world of nature, uh, we always have to um, take a step back from it and recognize how, uh, how, how much we are outside of it and how, how much it does not represent the uh, better angels of our nature. I'd like to end with some poetry of Mary Oliver. Um, the poems that I really, really enjoy of hers are almost all centered on the natural world. And uh, she said that she often, uh, she wrote her poems out walking out in nature. So um, I'm going to read this poem, uh, Sleeping in the Forest. I thought the earth remembered me. She took me back so tenderly, arranging her dark skirts, her pockets full of lichens and seeds. I slept as never before, a stone on the riverbed, nothing between me and the white fire of the stars but my thoughts, and they floated light as moths among the branches of the perfect trees. All night I heard the small kingdoms breathing around me, the insects and the birds who do their work in the darkness. All night I rose and fell as if in water, grappling with a luminous doom. By morning I had vanished at least a dozen times into something better. And one more poem here by Mary Oliver called The Swan. Did you too see it, drifting all night on the black river? Did you see it in the morning, rising into the silvery air? An armful of white blossoms, a perfect commotion of silk and linen as it leaned into the bondage of its wings. A snowbank, a bank of lilies, biting the air with its black beak. Did you hear it, fluting and whistling? A shrill, dark music, like the rain pelting the trees like a waterfall knifing down the black ledges. And did you see it, finally, just under the clouds, a white cross streaming across the sky, its feet like black leaves, its wings like the stretching light of the river? 
And did you feel it in your heart how it pertained to everything? And have you too finally figured out what beauty is for? And have you changed your life? So I think both these poems uh, speak to the idea that we discussed uh, early on in the podcast that Helen MacDonald talks about, about sort of what we bring to our relationship to animals and to nature and the sort of mythic qualities and what they can teach us uh, as through that symbolism that we bring to them. Um, and I think that Mary Oliver experiences nature in a healing way because she's able to see sort of deep metaphors and deep symbolism and also see a reflection of things that are deeply human. And, uh, and in, in seeing those things in the outside world, she's able to see them in herself. So again, even though, um, you know, even wh whether you're experiencing the violence of the hawk or the sort of ethereal calming sound of the tides at night, uh, the, these, these, both these experiences, we enter into them and then when we retreat from them, we come back having learned something about being human. But we need to see that in nature. We need to observe and immerse ourselves in nature uh, and in order to understand what it is to be a human being. So while animals in the natural world um, can be very symbolic and mythic and all that, we also know, um, those of us who own pets, they, we also know that they just become uh, part of our families and part of our lives. I'm always just amazed at how much the dogs are in tune with our lives and how integrated they are into our lives and uh, just what richness they bring to it. I think that it's amazing. It always feels like a privilege that animals have um, sort of deigned to hang out with us human beings. And, you know, when um, it, it never, it still amazes me that um, horses, you know, let us ride them, uh, enjoy us riding them, and, uh, and, and are so cooperative and so willing and so brave and allow us to experience things that we could never experience um, on our own two feet. We need, to, we need four feet, hooves <laughs> pounding on the ground. Um, they can go a lot faster than us and we can experience some truly beautiful moments thanks to them. So um, I just have so much gratitude for nature and for animals and they certainly inspire wonder. And um, here's a great quote from James Harriet. He's the author of uh, All Creatures Great and Small, which is such a great collection. Um, his life as a veterinarian. He's, he writes, And the peace which I always found in the silence and emptiness of the moors filled me utterly. And I think of um, visiting Scotland uh, or Ireland and those landscapes where you can just you feel completely dwarfed by them and there is a certain amount of just like peace and overwhelming um awe that you feel that is completely uh completely unique to the natural world there's no um cityscape that can do that for me um i'm definitely i've, I've lived in cities uh but like i said i grew up in the country and i'm glad to be back out in the country i'm definitely more in wordsworthian countryside i'm not in you know i mean these are nice farms around here uh you know the cultivated gardens things like that i am not on some rugged cliffside or anything like that <laughs> um so i i understand that but i I always am so thankful for for the animals and to wake up and go outside and hear the birds. And, um, you know, in my third trimester here, there are a lot of mornings when I would 
not be getting outside. I, it's, sometimes it feels like a Herculean effort, but these animals, you know, dogs need to be walked and animals need to be fed and fields need to be harrowed and things like that. And I'm so grateful to the natural world that um, we inhabit uh, for keeping me, keeping me sane and keeping me um, close to things that feel real. I think that, you know, again, we can get in our screens, in our offices and our phones and the news and, uh, you know, these things feel like reality. And sometimes I'll have a day where I'm really immersed in that sort of thing. And then I go to walk the dogs or something and I can just, I, I feel, um, you know, Wendell Berry's piece of wild things, just this moment of like, no, this, this is real. This is the, the real deal. Um, this being outside, you know, walking down to the river, walking over the fields, that's, that's so much more real than um, my newsfeed on my phone. So I think that uh, whenever possible, especially these days, if you can get out to a park, if you can go for a walk, do it, um, read some good poetry. And um, if you haven't read H's for Hawk, I really do recommend it. Um, and all of Wendell Berry's, his collection of essays, um, Our Only World, is really, really excellent and um, really immerses you in why our separation from our environments has caused so so many uh, problems. Also, Schumacher, E.F. Schumacher's um, Economics as if People Mattered, um, Small, Small is Beautiful. That is a great book. It's not explicitly environmental, but it's uh, it speaks to the sort of economy that Wendell Berry imagines that's based on that is much more agricultural, um, but also based on sort of on the value of individuals and their connection to the natural world and that we've, uh, you know, industrialization and technology, we've alienated ourselves uh, beyond belief and that it's had sort of disastrous results. So I think that those are important to to read and consider. Uh, I think that even if you're living in a city and an apartment that especially now there are so many great, there are urban farming communities. Um, you can grow some basil on your windowsill, um, have some flowers in the house, uh, plenty, plenty of ways to make sure that you are connected to the natural world. So um, my, my, uh, my recommendation for this week is uh, another podcast actually um, that's produced by the BBC. It's called Slow Radio. And so they're a little strange about how you can access it. It is on iTunes, but only um, a handful of the episodes are available in full. I will put in the show notes a link to um, full episodes that are available online, but they, uh, the idea here is that they, they'll go for like a walk in the Cotswolds. Um, they have a great series at a monastery. Um, and they just sort of let the sound linger. You know, you'll just hear maybe five minutes of birds or, and sometimes they um, intersperse poetry and things like that. But um, yeah, it's really, really excellent. And if you listen to my other podcast on fairy stories, you know that I love uh, Selkie stories and about stories about the gray seals in Ireland in Scotland and um, they, they have a whole episode um, where you can hear hear the seal songs, hear the seals on the beach and you can really imagine why such a rich mythology developed around them. So that's my recommendation. Uh, for copyright reasons, I won't play any of the podcast, but I will leave you sort of with a nice uh, naturescape here at the end, um, which will be similar to something you would hear on slow radio.
So thank you, as always, so much for listening. Um, I've, I've really been enjoying doing this podcast. Uh, the idea right now is that episodes will be coming out every Tuesday. I may at some point switch to every other Tuesday, sort of depending on how on top of pre-recording I get. But um, if you've been enjoying it, I would so appreciate if you head over to iTunes or whatever podcast app you use and leave a review. If you leave a comment, even better. Uh, with a new podcast, reviews are so important for getting the word out. And you can find me online at bornofwonder.com. If you go to the um, my podcast and audio tab, you can scroll down and uh, see more about this podcast, follow it to show notes and all sorts of things like that. You can contact me. Yep, that's where you'll, you'll find everything. So thank you again so much for listening. I'm Katie Marquette, and you've been listening to Born of Wonder. Here there is something more than just a transient experience. It's about uh, being. It's about the things that matter to me. It's about the white spaces between the paragraphs. Then God said, let there be light. It's a mistake you always made, Doc, trying to love a wild thing. <laughs>